I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hi, Monica. Hi, Jennifer. So we reached the height of summer, and this episode happens to come out on the 4th of July, so we thought it would be a perfect opportunity to share our picks for biophilic nature-inspired reads. Yeah, we like to assume if you're listening on this day, you're out on the beach or at the lake or at the very least taking a well-deserved break where you can sit outside with a good book as long as it's not too hot. (laughs) Exactly. So Monica and I both have come to the table with three picks. These books really run the gamut between fiction and nonfiction, science and art, and diving deeper into some themes we've explored on the podcast before. Yeah, it turned out to be a really fun mix. And not to tell on ourselves, but we didn't really prep before having this back and forth. So I was also pleasantly surprised by how each of our picks complimented each other. So it was kind of a fun coincidence, Jen. It really was a fun coincidence. I really wasn't expecting that at all. <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> so cool. So if you need some great ideas for nature-inspired book reading, keep on listening. Yeah. And I'll also note that all of these books are linked in our show notes, so they're super easy to find. All right. Without further ado, let's get to our biophilic summer reading list. All right, everybody. We are here with our second annual summer biophilic reading list. And Jen and I have both picked out three books. Yes, we have. And we're super excited because we all know we want to go on vacation or hang by the pool or the beach or go to the mountains, the lake, and we need a good book. Um, (laughs) Yes. Or your front porch. If you have a front porch. porch. Yes, exactly. Or your tent. Um, And we don't want to be scrolling on our phones. We want to fill our minds with interesting curious new ideas. So Jen and I each are bringing three books. They're all super different. Jen, do you want to kick off and talk about your first book that you've chosen for us? Sure. I have been so excited to talk about this book for so many reasons. So my first pick of our reading list is Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us by Susan Magsman and Ivy Ross. They're from John Hopkins. And First of all, I've been following their work for a while. So the fact that they put their work into a book is transformative. I can't recommend this book enough because really the book, first of all, it's really cool because it talks about our sensorial awareness and how we've lost the ability to sense everything. Because again, we're like spending so much time indoors. We're not activating our senses. And while it talks a lot about art, I also love the fact that Dr. Anjan Chatterjee is mentioned in the book. Our fave. Uh, our fave, because he's a leading voice in the space. I love that they actually attributed so much of his work in the beginning of the book, as well as Suchi Redding. So Suchi's ah, also mentioned Suchi. in the book because she's worked with them on some projects. But how they go into depth about how we're programmed in our DNA to play and discover and to create. And over time, we've been kind of like smacked on the wrist to say, like, don't doodle, don't play, stop doing this. And it's all about the transactions in life of everything has to be so transactional that we forgot how to just be creative as human beings, because as human beings, we are creative. And 
that we've lost curiosity too. So I just loved everything they put in this book because it resonated with me so deeply, every chapter. And that they also found that risk takers are the ones that are more open to curiosity and wonder and creating newness, which I thought was really cool too. Oh, um, I like yeah, that. That's really, really interesting. And they were all artists. Every one of us are born artists in different ways. You don't have to be an excellent dancer or singer or play a great instrument or anything. You just have to try and just let your body be around these vibrations of energy of what creativity really means to a human spirit. And it's really life-giving. So yeah, I loved every minute of this book. I thought it was fabulous. I love it. I love it. And obviously an art history major that's like, pulls on my heartstrings, like, cause going to a museum or seeing art yes. or even painting when I have the time to do it just for fun. I, it's so joyous. It is it changes, changes. I, it must be changing the chemistry in my brain. It changes your biology. It changes your brain. It hardwires. You want to do more, which I thought was really interesting too. That again, that neuroplasticity that we're continuously learning and that our brain changes when we continuously try like to learn an instrument or try a dance move or, you learn how to you know, do something with your hands and like knit work, whatever it might be. Yeah. That's all art. So the fact that we're trying it and evolving and growing our brains really is really cool. I love it. Well, that sort of ties in that thirst for knowledge, if you will. My first book, which is not a new book. It's actually an Elizabeth Gilbert book from 2013 called Ooh. The Signature of All Things that I had just discovered. So if you're a fan of hers, you've read through everything she's done, Eat, Pray, Love, Big Magic, etc. Go back and get Signature of All Things. It's a novel. And you know, so much of what we talk about here is a lot of nonfiction. But I thought that this was interesting because it's set in you know the early 1800s. And there is an entrepreneur who is an Englishman who's made a fortune in a specific trade. He becomes the richest man in Philadelphia. And his daughter, Alma, ultimately becomes a botanist, right? And a very gifted botanist. And so her research starts taking her into the mysteries of evolution. And she's like a science-minded person. But of course, she falls in love with a man who is an artist who makes paintings of orchids, right? Ooh. And he, he, I know, right? And cool. he pulls her in the opposite direction into the realm of the spiritual, the divine, the magical. We talk about thin places, right? Yeah. And so you have this like very clear-minded scientist with this utopian artist. And so this sort of unlikely coupling, right? Their commonality is their desperate understanding or need to understand the workings of the world and the mechanisms behind the life. And so I just wow. thought it was a wonderful sort of love story. It's about a thirst for knowledge, ambition, and I also love powerful women yes. in sort of the 1800s, 1900s. And so I'm throwing it in here because I think the topic that, you know, the sort of background is biophilia, yes. um, you know, both of their love of life and trying to understand what is happening between the age of enlightenment into the industrial revolution, the time period, and all of their assumptions at that time about science, religion, class. Wow. And they were all sort of like, changing into various ideas. And it's this real exciting story between the two of them. So The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. Which I kind of love the idea, like bringing that whole aspect of looking through the lens of nature through the science portion, but also like the brains of two different people coming together for the same kind of purpose of understanding yeah. like the nuances of life. So cool. 
And I love a novel where I learn something. I mean, I don't get me right. Love a beachy, beachy read. But this feels like it's a beach read, but it had a backdrop of like learning about history and really thinking about old ideas, new again. Anyway, so highly recommend that. I've had to dive into that one. So thanks for suggesting it. That's going to be my summer read, I think. Okay, good, good. (laughs) Okay, the next one for me... Oh, I love this book so much too. So it's called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life by Dacker Keltner. I've been following Dacker's work for years. I spoke to him back in 2017, 2018, when I was writing a white paper for the Global Wellness Institute. And he and I would correspond all the time. And I just loved his effervescence for life and his joy for learning. Like I was transfixed and transformed by just listening to him speak. And He's just such a neat guy, but this whole book, I mean, what you were just talking about too in your book about finding this like mesmerizing beauty of nature interwoven of awe and science and being human. I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what Dacker's talking about in this book. And the fact that awe can be found in so many places that we really never think about how transformative it is and how whether it be spiritual writing, nature writing, near death writing, psychedelic writing, it's all like interwoven with awe moments that we really didn't put awe to it, but it's always been transformative in what we do. And it's really cool that there's something like prevailing studies on how people that seek awe really have a different mindset. They kind of become more empathetic. They become more full of gratitude. And it was just so interesting to hear like, okay, awe is awe. Yeah. Okay, great. Whatever that means. But when you do have these moments of awe, like for myself this morning, I was able to go for like a nice morning swim. The sun was just coming up and it was just, the water was beautiful. Everything was just, wow, this is like wonder and beauty and, and fleeting because we know that moment, like he's talking about the moments in awe, it's, it's just momentary. So that moment's never going to return. So whether you jump out of an airplane or you know you do something like in your garden that's just blooming and you're like, oh my gosh, look, there's a tomato. Wow, that's cool. These are awe moments. And I, the book's really, really beautiful. And it just talks about the pro-social lens of it. So how we like look through the lens of awe, we become more empathetic because we are realizing we're like this little tiny granule in this giant world. And how do we kind of help one another? And that we're more in communion with one another than we're not. And it feels like the world has kind of separated us. But really, the human nature is to become more collaborative and in community. And that's where awe can be discovered through our senses and through one another. And it's just, it's a really special book. And I think you and Katrina, we'd all be like, yes, this is, we get this. This is such a part of the biophilic nature of wonderment. And of course, we talk about all the time because of thin places with our friend Phil Tab. So it's, I know it's all tied in, right? It's all tied in. So yeah, I recommend this book enough. It's really beautifully done. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The (laughs) Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk 
and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Serum B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Yeah. That sounds great. And we, I definitely, I know we're talking about interviewing him. He's pretty fabulous. So <laughs> he is. So my next book is a nonfiction and it is a new book. It just came out. It is called Everyday Utopia. What 2000 years of wild experiments can teach us about the good life by Kristen Godsey. And she is a professor at University of Pennsylvania. And she's done an incredible work over the years about women and economic independence. And she's been published in a ton of New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting about this new book, and there's like key insights from it, and it may not sound like a biophilic book, but one of the things that I think biophilia is, it's your, this innate need to be connected to nature and other living things. And so what she talks about is community a lot, right? And whether that's your private community or your public community, and there's a ton of amazing aspects in this book. But what I really felt like was anchored is that she sort of sets out the thesis that people have been looking for alternative ways to organize their public and private lives for over 25 years, right? And when I say private lives, that might be the family unit. And then the public might be your community and how you live. And I heard her on a podcast with Ezra Klein, which is the New York Times, which everybody should go listen to. It was one of those, you know, when you just get sort of blown away by a new concept, she was just reframing a lot of things that we talk about, about community and utopia. You know, it kind of hits home with me with Serenby. Everybody thinks, well, what is this place? And it doesn't make sense and it can't exist or Serenby is the weird thing. And we always sort of think, well, isn't it weird maybe that we're not all living this way, that we're not yes. on sidewalks and connected to people and porches and, and just have a much more dynamic day-to-day interactions with people. And so what was interesting is that, you know, part of this is for 2,500 years, she lays out since the fifth century BC, Pythagoras, our friend with the triangle, he left, who knew, mainland Greece to set up a colony in Southern Italy that was going to be mathematicians and philosophers and theologians because he wanted to create like basically an intentional community that was going to be all about seeking math and philosophy, which is kind of wild, right? Wow. (laughs) Okay. And And so people have been thinking about how do we live? Can we live more intentionally? And so she goes through a lot of like, Serenby is not an intentional community. We, do, we are not centered around an economic, religious, or any specific thing. We're not a co-op. It's just, it's a regular old neighborhood that is, has a you know, specific different type of placemaking. And we always say like, if we're set around anything, it's sort of a philosophy of nature, right? Or biophilia. 
but it's not intentional. She goes through and talks about all these communities that a lot of them are set around those things and they end up falling apart, right? Because you can't just, you know, you're forcing everybody or everybody sort of joined together around this one topic, but inevitably people need more freedom than that, you know, and if they want to ebb and flow. But the big thing is she's like, the way we've built housing, communities, places, it really limits our ability to live happy, connected and sustainable lives, which I think is biophilia is about. And so I was most attracted to the community aspect, but she also brings it into the personal, very personal about how family relationships are pulled together. And so she starts talking about how a lot of single moms, for whatever reason, divorced or had a baby on their own or something happened to their partner, that they're banding together and buying homes together and living Mm -hmm. together to create a different type of community that would be outside of what society says is normal. But we should be thinking this way, right? And so she purports that that is a utopian idea, if you will. And again, I say a lot, you know, there is no utopia. That's sort of like a pipe dream. But she spun it on its head for me. And it was more, well, what if we have utopian thinking? Or what if we use utopia as a guiding post that we're heading towards? And so again, moving away from the single family home you know, which has always been standard. And in some places, it is illegal to have multi-generational families living in a single family home. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. And so she just opened up my eyes to bigger thinking about just how culture and society and the powers of be have gotten us to where we are and the way we live. Right. And and it's just thinking about so how, fascinating. You know, we can change it. We can change it. And so I was blown away by her. So I love it. Highly recommend this. Very big ideas. I think probably a good way in is to listen to the podcast interview with her and then go get her book. So that is a little bit denser summer read than my Elizabeth Gilbert. But sounds so fascinating. Yeah, she's great. Really great. And she's another. Maybe we should get her on the podcast too. Okay. (laughs) Sounds good to me. But I I love what we're doing, Monica, this back and forth because your books are so complimentary to what I'm picking out, which we didn't plan at all, <laughs> not one no. bit. So this no, is really just... interesting because what you just said, this whole utopia, my next pick is Jenny Odell's new book called Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. And I loved her last book, How to Do Nothing, which I read last summer, because again, this is all about time. So this book is completely about time. So she got really interested in what time really means to us. And when did we really start thinking about time in a way that makes us feel so stressed out. Like, how did we get to this point where I don't have enough time? Why is my time so limited? Like everyone is just burnt out because of time. So she started studying time. And when we really started like clocking in at work, how much time did it take for someone to clock in on like the actual clock at work? Like all these like little things. And when did spreadsheets come into play when we were like clocking how many hours we were working? Like slave labors, like, okay, this worker was here from this time to this time. So there's a lot of like, dysfunction in that aspect of like how we're looking at time in terms of work. So how much work can we get out of someone during a certain amount of time? They don't have enough time to do anything, either like eat or drink. They're just going to be working. And like they were going back to like a hundred years. And I, it, this book is just really fascinating about time. So discovering a life behind the clock also shows like every moment is history. So what we're doing right now is going to become history when we're done 
it's now in the past. So how do we figure out these moments that are so minuscule, yet so important to our lives every single day that we're overlooking because we're taught to overlook the beauty of the moments because we have to be from nine to five or whether it be like seven to seven, you should be working on something because if you're not productive, then who are you? And I thought that was so interesting that we become this species of having to work because society told us we have to be like productive instead of being even going back to the last book of like, ah, and your brain on art, like as human beings, we're supposed to be creating things that make us feel connected to being human. <laughs> so the right. book was just so interesting. And there's a really cool part of me. She's quoted so many different things in here, but there's one thing she talks about, about or like anesthesia. We have no sense of self because we are so tied to the clock. We're so tied to the time of day of, God forbid someone does something at seven o'clock at night versus seven a.m. Like, oh, you're eating. I saw like a girlfriend of mine have dinner for breakfast the other day. It's like she had like a full blown, like what you'd have for dinner with like a sandwich or something or something kind of big. And I saw another girlfriend say, why are you having that for breakfast? It's not for dinner. And she said, what difference does it make? You know, it's like, I like right. to have this for now. So like what we yeah. perceive because we were taught to perceive certain things at certain times of day, because that was the norm that we've been pushed upon. But she talked about like looking at nature too. She said, you know, COVID was that time where people started looking out their window at birds and the birding population, like everyone wants to be a birder and looking at our windows and listening to bird song. And she also goes like to say that she and her boyfriend were like two different places. They were watching this one tree and one plant or leaf like grow over like a certain amount of time, like days or weeks. Oh, and they're both wow. growing, same kind of tree, two different places and how that time is so beautiful and how slow you know, it's growing because we're all evolving and we're all growing and we're all aging. But how do we kind of fulfill that meaningful time that we do have with things other than just being like, I have to be grinding to achieve life's happiness. There's so many parts of this that are just so interesting to me. So I could like go on forever. I could go on forever about each one of these books, but um, I know I want to read that one. You know what? Actually, I got this at Sarah B when I was there at the the leadership summit. Yeah, I got that. Oh, uh, I got it at your bookstore. Hills and Hamlet. Hills we'll and Hamlet. Yeah. bookstore. I got it at. Well, it. And and we're going to put April. a link to Bookshop, and you can choose your favorite local bookstore, but also we are favorite local bookstore here at Sarabia Hills and Hamlet. But, you know, <laughs> so, it's interesting. Yes. You said sort of at the beginning of that, that the anesthesia, right? Or we've been indoctrinated to yes. whatever it is, culturized or whatever the right thing, the word is. And recently I've been talking to a lot of people about like, we need to just ask different questions. Like yes. are we asking, sort of like rethinking, like I really love when I engage with somebody or I hear a podcast or read a book that just flips the script on a topic for me. Yeah. But I had always been thinking of it this way, but why shouldn't we think of it in a new way? And so I think it's really important for all of us. I mean, I think the pandemic did that for work and where we're living and how we spend our time and purpose. And I like that, that the time, like, cause I think when you learn the history of something like the yes. sort of this utopia or these like communities, how people have lived, when you have history, you have that context to reflect on your life currently and, or, you know, in business or personally yeah. when you're having conversations, because without understanding history, it's sometimes very difficult to have any context for 100%. Yes. What's going on today, right? Like to understand yeah. world conflicts even. So, 
But you're right. I love that idea because we learn so much. Like I love reading these books. I love podcasts because again, like you're opening your mind to things that, oh, they're out of the norm, but they, they probably should be the norm. <laughs> We're just not taught yeah. it or it's not in the mainstream media. So yeah, there's some really interesting, fascinating books of how do we reframe the brain to think about things that are healthier for us, better for us, better for our communities, better for our families. And just yeah. be better for ourselves instead of like living in this like survival mode 24 seven and stressed all the time. Right. How do we become more, you know, comfortable? Yeah. Well, speaking of survival mode, my last book. Is, <laughs> See, we all get is a, is a, it is a fiction. It's a fiction book and it's a type of fiction called climate fiction or cli-fi. And I like it's called that. The Mini- yeah, I know. I know. It's funny, right? It's yep. a ministry for the future. And it's by Kim Stanley Robinson, who is a New York Times bestselling author, has written a number of books. This is also it's a 2020 book. And what was interesting is I think on the back cover, as I was reading it, it was one of Obama's favorite books of the year, which I thought oh. was sort of interesting. And I'll, you'll understand why as we get into it. So you've got this whole genre that I have never really dug into, right? This cli-fi, right? So it's a science fiction author. And the book is set in the near future. And it follows the ministry for the future, which is a, I don't know if you would call like an intergovernmental body that's been established under the Paris Agreement. Again, this is fiction. And the mission of the ministry is to be an advocate for the world's future generations of citizens, that the future generations have just as valid of rights to the present generation, right? So because, you know, sure. it's a little bit of the seven generations, like how do we think about the future? And so this is a government body that's set up globally to think about this and to bring policies forward, right? And so because it's in the near future and it's the middle of summer and there are heat waves happening everywhere right now, and it starts off with a heat wave in India that is devastating. It's a little traumatizing. So I, sure. I apologize for this maybe not so poppy beach read, but I thought it was a really great way to talk about the effects of climate change and within a narrative plot, right? So it follows a woman who is the head of the ministry for the future and another guy who is an American aid worker that has experienced this deadly heat wave in India. So it's the two of them and it's sort of their paths forward. And it talks about economy. It talks about ecology. They talk about the Bitcoin-y, like setting up a new way to do commerce. But I think what was interesting to me is that the scientific accuracy was so real, coupled with sort of this nonfiction descriptions of different things, it becomes kind of like a, you know, it's cli-fi, but it has hard science embedded into uh, it. Interesting. And so I thought that that was interesting. And actually, some people call it utopian fiction. So back to my, so it's like portraying <laughs> a problem that society is trying to address and providing sort of the elements of fiction and how the climate change threatens the characters. And I think it was set in 2025. So again, that's right here. Published in 2020, set in 2025. And it's just all the challenges that you have dealing with different groups around the world. And they really don't start making change until there is catastrophic problems, which is unfortunate. 
Um, yes. And not to be, you know, doom and gloom, but I did think that it helps again sometimes to read about a fictional narrative, to think about how we could absolutely make change and fix things collectively in the real world. And but, that we're um, capable of, yeah, we're capable of coming together to make changes, whether it be policy, legislature, like community activism. So how do we do that? So yeah, I think that's a great idea to read it now. It was kind of fun because they had like a carbon coin and. So it was this new currency and a whole reward system with countries. And then a bunch of countries were going in and doing a geoengineering project in the glaciers. So it was sort of like, again, what are some economic solutions? What are some technological solutions? And then policy. But even just the fun stuff that they talked about, how like all of the container ships are now sail driven. And nobody in really, really limited, nobody's flying, really. And so... Obviously, this would be large changes, but I just love when a fiction writer thinks about what does the future look like that's like pretty close to where we are. Interesting. Really interesting. So. I want to check that one out too. <laughs> well, I mean, Maybe hey. an audiobook. <laughs> an audiobook. No, but still, like when you think about the news today, like you just said, like the wildfires and heat and there's just so much happening. So it's happening in the news. We have to start reading. We can't put our head in the sand. That's for sure. So we're better off equipped with knowledge. And even if it is a book that's not of today, I think it's still important that we read those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are my three books. You've got your three books. Those are great. I can't wait to dive into yours. Yeah, we're going to drop them all in the show notes and we'll put a link to Bookshop. We highly encourage you always to go to your local bookseller, but I understand, you know, other places ship stuff, you know, immediately, but we got to keep our independent guys moving. And I guess we'll talk to you next time, but have a great summer. And we'll talk to you guys in a week or two with our next interview. Bye, Jen. Great, Monica. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement.